So not too long ago, I had a conversation with what must be the most unique man in Australia. This is a young Aussie bloke who was complaining about getting public holidays, right? So I think Jesus rising from the dead is a miracle. That's, that's, that's pretty close. In his 20s, and he was kind of complaining to me about the fact that we take a day off work or multiple days off work at Easter because some ancient guys wrote a fairy tale. And so he had a problem with it because of the economic losses that the country faces on the, because of the fact that we take time off work. And Good Friday being, you know, like the most observed holiday of the year. No one works then, pretty much, apart from footy players, apparently. So he was going on about this, and I, you know, I know for a fact he's no ancient historian. He is not a theologically uh, trained scholar, but his objection deserves our attention, right? It, it raises the question, is this thing, this day, this occurrence, this week, in the case of Holy Week, which is observed by two and a half billion people and whose effects ripple across all of secular culture as well, at least in our own country, is it based on anything in history or is it, like this guy said, the ramblings of some early incarnation of the Brothers Grimm or something. Is this just a fairy tale? Is this just a myth made up by a bunch of guys with some time on their hands? Well, I just want to take us through this passage this morning and show you why I think categorically that's not the case, and therefore why we, as, as, as people who are gathering together to worship a risen Lord, why we can have confidence in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Ready? All right. You seem so ready, guys. Wow. Not enough chocolate. You ready? Come on. All right, so here's, here's the deal. The, the book of Mark that we have been studying over these days, throughout Holy Week, we have been studying Mark's account of the passion, or the, that means the suffering of Jesus. And the thing about Mark's gospel is this. John Mark, who is a disciple of Jesus, uh, an early preacher in the church, a a fellow traveler with Paul and with Luke and with Barnabas, he wrote this, probably either co-authored it with Peter, the Apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness to these things, or wrote it uh, out of the collection of Peter's sermons. In any case, he wrote it in about AD 70. That's a conservative estimate. It could have been 60, mid-60s. Most scholars think it was about AD 70. Now, here's the problem with that, if you want to say like my buddy did, that it was made up. Jesus died in AD 30. This was written in AD 70. And therefore, there are people alive when this book hits the shelves, so to speak, who could easily disprove the contents of it, right? Just think about it today. Uh, something happened in 1980, and today I write a book about it. And I make massive, massive cataclysmic claims in that book. How easy is it for people to, to, to disprove what I've written? I say in 1980, the world was turned upside down. That book doesn't sell any copies. Or it's immediately dismissed as a work of fiction. 
So this is the problem for people who want to say this is just mythology. It was written so close to the events. And the content of what was written is easily historically verifiable. So we saw on Friday morning, Mark, in AD 70, maybe late 60s, 40 years, so 30 or 40 years after the event, says that on Good Friday, when Jesus died, from noon, he's very, very precise, from noon to three o'clock, darkness drops, right? The sun disappears. It's pitch black for three hours. He also says the curtain in the temple, which represented the keep out sign between people and God, which represented the gulf between people and God, even God's own people, let alone you and I as Gentile people, right? That keep out sign, that barrier, that wall of hostility, he says, uh, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 10 centimeters thick, he says, was torn from top to bottom. Darkness for three hours, inexplicably, massive curtain torn. 40 years later, anyone could say, huh, that didn't happen. What's this guy on about? Look, just come and look at the curtain. There's no tears. No one stitched it up. And we read in our passage, following on from Good Friday, in that first section in verse 42 to 47, Mark, if he's making the story up, makes a, a critical error in naming Joseph of Arimathea. He says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent man in Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin. This was the guy that everyone kind of points and whispers when he walks through the room or through the shopping center, right? He names him and says, he asked for the body from Pilate, that he buried Jesus in his own personal tomb, easily destroyed 40 years later. Either Joseph of Arimathea is still alive and says, that never happened, or his son says, no, that never happened, or any member of the Sanhedrin who are desperate to disprove the resurrection say, that never happened. So if you're going to make up a myth, don't name one of the most prominent people in society as being complicit in it. It's a rookie error. And then we find more mistakes. If you, if, seriously, if you're going to make something up, don't do this. Verse 1 to 4, he says this. I'll read it for us. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, uh, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. The very, then very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Who were the first witnesses to this so-called miracle? Women. Mark. If you're going to invent something, don't get women to be the witnesses. Ugh. Women. No one trusts women. And they didn't, right? First century Jerusalem, a woman couldn't testify to anything. Today, in many Muslim countries, women's testimony isn't valid in court. In Yemen, a woman's testimony is 
counted as exactly 50% of a, man, a man's testimony. So if you've got he says, she says, he wins. Today, in the first century, this was true everywhere. In fact, this is another sermon, but you can say very, very certainly the greatest thing that ever happened for women was Christianity. But don't get the women to be the first witnesses. Just imagine, right, you go and tell everyone, yeah, the most amazing thing that's ever happened has happened. Jesus was dead and now he's resurrected. Imagine the response. Really, who, who saw that? Oh, these women did. Oh, well, that doesn't mean anything. If you're going to make something up, at least get someone prominent or at very least get a man to be the one who can verify it. Women, and not just any women, just very, very ordinary women, and one of them, a disreputable woman. The first woman that's mentioned here is Mary Magdalene. She was a prostitute. Even today, if you're prosecuting someone and you can get a witness to be a prostitute, then, you know, the case is closed. Everyone knows prostitutes can't see properly. She was a prostitute. Jesus had delivered her of seven demons. She was a woman of ill repute. Like you got women down here and then you got her somewhere right down the bottom. Don't get them to be the ones who testify to the truth. Don't get them to be the ones who were the first eyewitnesses to this. You couldn't invent this stuff. You couldn't make this stuff up. They're such ordinary women. Do you notice that when we were reading it? So ordinary. The account reads like just... Mark is just, he, there's no embellishment. There's not a hint of mythology in this. C.S. Lewis, one of the great academics of mythology after he became a Christian, said, I've, I've studied and read and written on mythology my whole life, and I see nothing of it in the gospel account. It's just so ordinary. It says they're on the way to the tomb. They've waited until the Sabbath is over so that they can buy spices because you can't do that on the Sabbath. You can't do anything on the Sabbath. So they wait until Sunday morning. They get up early and they're on the way to the tomb and suddenly they go to each other, who's going to move the stone away? These tombs were constructed in an ingenious way. They would have a large disc-shaped stone and a groove that ran down like this so that when you rolled the stone down, it was easy to roll into place, but very difficult, if not impossible, to roll back up. Very cool bit of engineering. And these women were on the way to the tomb and they say, they stop and say, how are we going to do this? Who's going to move it from us? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? It's just such a normal thing to do. These women who are desperately grieving, probably sleepless, with grief at the death of their most beloved leader, have gone to all the trouble of buying the stuff, are on the way to the tomb and realize we're not even going to be able to get in this thing. I can't tell you how many times I have woken up normally from quite a sleepless night because our kids are not good at sleeping and I've ridden my bike the couple of k's up to the church and then gone, ah. I can't tell, I'm pretty absent-minded as it is. I can't tell you how many times I had to turn back, ride back home and get my keys. Right, and that's exactly what's happened to them. 
It's only on the way that they realize they're not going to be actually going to be able to do this thing. It's so normal. It's so everyday. It's so, just has the, the, the aroma of historicity on it. And then these women meet the young man who the other gospel writers identify as an angel. He tells them to go straight away. Well, first of all, he says, don't be afraid. And then he tells them, go and tell Peter and the other disciples. What do they do? They are afraid. They don't tell anyone. These are just, just normal women doing normal things in the midst of the most miraculous and cataclysmic event that's ever happened. There's more, okay? So verse 6, this is what that young man says to them. He says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. Now, we, Jimmy said this at the start of the service just to appease all you traditionalists, all right? He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the most normal thing for us to assume on Easter Sunday. That's what it's all about. But for these people, they had no category for this. They had no category for this. This was utterly shocking to them. The Jewish people had no category, no concept of a present-day resurrection. They believed that the resurrection would come at the end of the age and would be accompanied by certain signs. They had no concept of someone being raised from the dead in this life. No concept. So here's the thing, right? I've got two kids, so I hear fibs all the time, all right? We don't call them lies because that's a bit harsh, but fibs, right? I hear fibs all the time, and none of the fibs that I hear from my kids contain the concepts of quantum mechanics, right? People don't tell lies that contain truths that they have no concept of. The whole thing about lies that makes them believable is that they contain things that we understand at some level. But these people, if they're going to construct a myth and not going to include the resurrection of a man in this present age, they have no concept of it. So when the man says, he is risen, they are shocked. It's probably why they leave trembling and tell no one. They just, they don't have, it's like two plus two is five. Two plus two equals red, right? It just blows their minds. And you say, well, what about Lazarus, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, raised a few people from the dead. Yes, he did. But that's not resurrection, That's resuscitation. He brings him back from the dead, and then sometime later, Lazarus dies. Imagine the second time around, they're just kind of like poking him for a while. (laughs) But he died again. He wasn't resurrected. He was raised from the dead. He was resuscitated only to die again. Resurrection, in this case, is Jesus bodily raised from the dead, never to die again. Raised from the dead with a body that does not decay. That's the hope that every Christian around the globe has this morning. Bodily resurrection. Right now, Jesus is in heaven with a body. The same body he had on this day. And one day, at the resurrection of all people, we too will receive a body that will live forever. They had no concept of this. 
And so those three words, he has risen, echo throughout history as some of the most profound and unexpected words that have ever been uttered. But there's more, okay? Verse 7, he says, after he's announced he has risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him, go and tell the disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of them. He's going to appear to them just like he promised. The disciples and Peter. Peter probably mentioned because he was the leader of the disciples and the co-author of this gospel. Peter, who had just recently, in the last couple of days, denied Jesus publicly, called down curses upon himself to make it emphatic that he didn't know who Jesus was. He is now cowering, afraid, and ashamed. If I know anyone, he's probably having suicidal thoughts. The guy he banked everything on is dead and in the ground, and he has completely denied him and cursed him. The other disciples are nowhere to be seen. Listen, the women are there. The women are there. Where are the men? One of them ran off into the garden naked. He's disappeared. The rest of them are cowering in a room, too scared to leave. Because they saw what happened to Jesus, and they didn't like it. So you've got this group of misfits, cowards. And for some reason, they go on, as Jimmy said, to be the greatest missionaries, evangelists, and world changers that there has ever been. The world changes. Jesus dies. Something happens on Sunday. 40 days later, they start a movement which is without peer in world history as a world-changing movement. Just about everything you owe to your current existence has its roots in Christianity. We've mentioned the rights of women and we could mention 10,000 others. Now, what happened? Plug in any explanation you like that isn't the resurrection and that doesn't happen. It doesn't. Those guys go back to fishing Maybe. And so the atheist, Bart Ehrman, who's a a biblical scholar and skeptic, says this. Finally, we know that after his death, his followers experienced what they described as the resurrection. The appearance of a living but transformed person who had actually died. They believed this, they lived it, and they died for it. Now, he's a skeptic. He doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he knows enough to know that they did. And so the question is not, did the resurrection happen so much as, why did they believe it happened? They believed it. They lived it. They died for it. Now, I have told many lies in my lifetime. Many. And I've played a lot of practical jokes. But there's no practical joke and no lie that I'd be willing to die for. Eleven out of the twelve disciples, only John escaped, were killed for their faith. Some had the skin stripped off them, peeled off them while they were yet alive. Some were crucified upside down just to add insult to deadly injury. 
But all of them died, and none of them would die for something that they came up with on the spur of a moment. Right? Just think logically for a minute. Even the skeptics acknowledge this. So what you've got here, and this is just the passage that we had set for the d- today. You could go through the whole Gospels and the New Testament and find more and more and more evidence. But in, in response to this overwhelming and reasonable and logical evidence, there are some, and perhaps some here today, who go to great lengths and really fanciful lengths to come to some alternative conclusion. So I'll just motor through a few quite quickly. First, there's the swoon theory. No one really believes this anymore, but there's still a few who are kind of sticking with it, right? The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, you know. He was flogged by a Roman scourge. It was a a cat and nine tails whip with bits of bone and metal sewed into the end of it so that when it lodged in the back, it would tear flesh off and expose the lungs. He, He went through that after a sleepless night and then was nailed to a cross, nails piercing vital nerves in wrists and in his feet and then crucified. The death rate for crucifixion was 100%. And then just to make sure, a spear shoved into his chest cavity. Gospel writers tell us that water and blood poured out, which means his heart had stopped beating and started to fill with fluid. But these guys were saying, well, no, no, no. After all that, he was put in a tomb for three days, and then at some point he just kind of felt better, right? (laughs) Popped a few Panadol. Hey. No one's buying that theory. This is it. You need to come up with fanciful theories to overcome overwhelming evidence. You just you have to do that. And so there's the swoon theory, then there's the the um the mass hallucination theory that that this was just something that people imagined happened. And Paul says, well, it happened to 500 people. Some of them are still alive today, so they can tell you. And so they say, well, it was a mass hallucination. There is no concept of mass hallucination in psychology. You might have a hallucination, but we're not all going to have it. And try to make the case that the world changed because of some... I mean, come on. What about, well, the, the, the disciples, they stole Jesus' body, right? Matthew tells us this was going around, I think it's Matthew 28, he says, the Jews started this rumour, they're like, oh man, Jesus rose from the dead and we killed him. Ah, uh, Okay, we're going to start. We, all right, from now on, the truth is they stole the body. Again, no one really holds to this anymore because it's easily falsifiable. We know that they were desperately searching for the body so they could go, like a weekend at Bernie's, hey, 80s kids, you're with me, hey. As well as the fact we know that there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, that the stone was rolled in front of the tomb. The soldiers would pay for their lives if the, with their lives if the body was stolen. All of this means that not many people hold to this. But some people will still assert it. It's got a little bit more legs than my buddy who said it's a fairy tale. Some people say they went to the wrong tomb. Right? That's why it was empty. They went, how many people forget the grave of their best friend? It doesn't happen. I know one of the last things I will forget before I succumb to Alzheimer's is the place where my mum is buried. Not going to forget that. Then go to the wrong tomb. 
They went to the right tomb. It was just an empty tomb. And my favorite one, a book from the 70s. This is legit. I didn't Photoshop this. 1970s, all the best books were written in the 70s, right? John M. Allegro, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. His assertion is that Jesus Christ was actually the name of a magic mushroom and that Christianity is the product of psychedelic trips. You can laugh, it's funny. But it's legit. He was like, this is for real. So in the face of reasonable, logical evidence, there are people who just want to go to the the most fanciful lengths to disprove what is, to my mind, reasonably true. And is the only thing that makes sense of the evidence that we have. N.T. Wright, an Oxford-educated scholar, said this, these three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb, and the origin of the Christian faith all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. So, where does that leave us? If we can't just dismiss it as fairy tales, and the other objections we have find themselves baseless and historically unreliable, then we're left in a situation where we need to come to terms with Jesus on Easter morning. We need to come to terms with that. History itself revolves around this event. Human history is divided around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And while we're very good at hiding the past and being totally focused on the next thing, as soon as we open our minds to the sweep of human history, we can't ignore this fact. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to be encouraged. What you believe is not some unreasonable, illogical leap. It's not. Christianity stands alone as having solid, historical, historically verifiable evidence for what they believe. To put it in context, I've said Mark wrote his gospel 40 years after Jesus' death. Take the life of King Arthur. Most people believe that King Arthur is a real king. He, 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 he ruled... Uh, present-day England in about AD 500, the first thing written about him is 400 years after his death. 40, 400. And so I want you to be encouraged. Look into this. This is the great thing about Christianity. We see objections to our faith and we say, come in, look around. We've got nothing to hide. Dig deep. Be encouraged. We don't gather here for no reason this morning. And by the way, if the resurrection never happened, then we are all wasting our time. For you, it's the hour and a half. For me, it's every day of the week, right? We are, and hopefully for you, it's every day of the week as well. But we are totally wasting our time. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are of all people to be pitied. 
People should feel sorry for us, deluded morons. And I know some people need the church as a kind of crutch. I don't. I got hobbies, all right? I could be at home right now in my pajamas watching Netflix. All right? I could, I'm happy to do that. So happy to do that. So be encouraged. Your faith isn't some kind of leap. Now, it is faith. I'm not saying you can just do all this rationally. No, God gives you the gift of faith so that you can believe the facts. But if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian and you're not so sure about the historicity of these things that we believe, and up until now, maybe you did think it was was kind of like a nice story. I read a a statistic this morning that 40% of adults in the UK believe that Jesus never lived, let alone was raised from the dead. That's insane. There is no, let me tell you this, there is no, there is no scholar of history today serving in any university in the world that doesn't think Jesus was a real person. There's There's none, believer or unbeliever. Everyone knows that he was real person. 40% of people of a nation of, what, 70 million don't believe he existed. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And maybe you've been kind of reading it up over the years. And maybe you're here this morning because this is Easter and this is what you do. And let me encourage you, look into this stuff. We've opened up the doors to you as Christians. We want you to come and have a look around. It's open for inspection. Read the best books. Seek out the best scholars. Seek the truth. Jesus said before he died and was raised, this beautiful statement that those who knock will have the door open to them. So get out there. Start knocking on doors. Knocking on the doors of your mind. Opening yourself up to the possibility that maybe this is actually true. And if it's true, then everything changes. And if it's not, then nothing does. You've got nothing to lose. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to this this morning. I'm under no illusions that what I've said this morning has suddenly changed your mind. And you came in here a skeptic and now you're born again. What I have said will not do that. But if Jesus is risen, ruling and reigning over all things, then he has the power to invade, invade your heart and mind and open your eyes up to the reality of his resurrection. If you want to talk more about that, we would love to do that. We're going to stand up and sing God's praises. Why? Because he's risen and reigning over all things. And during that time, you might want to come and chat to one of us. There'll be a couple of us over here. You might want to pray. We'd love to pray with you, or we can chat to you. We can make a time to catch up with you. We would love to talk more about this single event, this single cataclysmic event that has changed everything for everyone. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I just thank you so much that we get to gather here this morning and worship the risen Lord Jesus. And that our worship isn't baseless. It's not unfounded. It's not insane. That you really did rise from the dead. That you conquered death. And because of that, you have the power to grant us eternal life. Lord, we believe as Christians that our destiny is eternal life. 
real, resurrected, bodily, eternal life in a new heavens, a new earth. These are magnificent truths. I pray that they would drive us to worship and to make all of life all about Jesus. And it's in his risen name that we pray. Amen.